Hi there, I'm Jim. And I'm Jen. Let's talk teaching. Welcome to Let's Talk Teaching, a podcast from the Center for Integrated Professional Development here at Illinois State University. I'm Jim G. Hey, look, it's Dr. Jennifer Freeberg. Hi, Jen. Hi, Jim. Longtime fans of the podcast and of our center. I'm assuming there are at least a couple of them out there. One or two, maybe. We've, been all, <laughs> we've only been doing this show for like five or six years. Anyway, we'll know that uh, Dr. Jennifer Freeberg, Jen, is the endowed cross-chair in the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. So she holds that position. But also, for the past couple of years, you were our interim director for what we were before we transformed into this beautiful butterfly that, oh, sorry, I'm now I'm hitting papers, yeah. this beautiful butterfly that is now the Center for Integrated Professional Development, and you're now our director of scholarly teaching. Did I, I get all that right? I think so. That's a lot. Yes, it is. It all does fit on one business card. I, I know. <laughs> I, I know, because I fit it there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a new academic year is starting. Mm -hmm. Here we are again. And we've done episodes before. You and I have talked about this. Uh, Claire LaMonica and I did several episodes when we first started our little pokey little experiment in podcasting here uh, about how to start your semester. But, you know, it, it, it never hurts to kind of revisit that. And I think we have a new, dare I say, framework. I think so. Which we can use to, to talk about that. And actually, it's not that new either, but we're going to take a new look at it. But first of all, let me just get your initial thoughts about starting the semester this year in 2022. It hasn't been the same for a long time. And and so, you know, we, we came back last year uh, in face-to-face -face format, but still there was some, some online, there was still some hesitance, there was still some hybrid. I think what we're going to see this fall is a, a real return to a robust face-to-face -face learning and teaching environment here at, at Illinois State um, and across the institution. And, and certainly we've got some wonderful online programs, but I think what I hear from, from folks is just a real excitement to be back in front of their students, to be working with their students in their classroom rooms and to be um, able to maybe even make it back out into the community to do some teaching and learning yeah. or engage with people outside of the institution as as uh, more opportunities for engaging in this 2020 context. I, I don't like the phrase post-pandemic, but in, in this context, you know, we're, we're a couple years out from where we started and, and using what we know about uh, mitigation strategies and keeping folks safe, how can we come back to our robust face-to-face -face, right. um, kind of experiences? And I just, I sense a lot of excitement around that. Instructors still have the option, of course, of teaching uh, while wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. the, the episode we did this time last year was all about how to teach with with a uh, mask with a mask on mm -hmm. and using a personal amplifier and all of that. And and if folks are going to still plan to do that, we can we'll link to that episode for the show page for this episode. But um, I I'm looking forward to seeing students complete faces mm -hmm. uh, in class. And and I mean, that happened last spring towards the middle of the spring semester. I think the mask mandate was lifted on our campus, but sure. I'm interested to, to start that from the get-go. Mm -hmm. There's so much about building relationships with students and communicating just as human beings that includes nonverbals, including facial expressions. And that's been one of the hardest things to to account for with yeah. with the mask wearing. And, and, you know, is she smiling? Is she cringing? Yeah. You know, what are they or, thinking? Or, or when we're Zooming, when mm -hmm. we're using Zoom, that's that that is something that's part of that mediated environment. It causes that Absolutely. issue. So we wanted to talk today a little bit about uh, the building that culture. Mm hmm. Uh, in our class, and we're going to kind of do that through, again, I'm going to drop that word framework, through, yes. through the framework for inclusive teaching excellence, which, mm -hmm. um, tell, tell us about what that is. We've talked about it briefly on the show before, but sure. I don't know if we've ever really dived into its history. 
Yeah. Well, let me first uh, define something called a signature pedagogy. Uh, this is something that came out of Randy Bass's work a while back and, and others have picked up on through the years. But a signature pedagogy is usually um, associated or affiliated with a discipline. So this is how you teach students in nursing. This is how you teach students in rhetoric and English. Mm-hmm. This is how you teach students in STEM fields. And, and really, a, a signature pedagogy talks about the things very specific to a discipline that are really important to teaching successfully and engaging with your students successfully so that they hopefully emerge on the other side of their, their programs of study as competent professionals who can think and do and act like uh, they need to, to do the jobs that they're training to do or, or engage in the work they hope to uh, be a part of. And so uh, several years ago, uh, Nancy Chick, who now is at Rollins College, started mm-hmm. to do some work around uh, an institutional signature pedagogy. So moving away from the discipline and thinking more about the institutional context to say, how do we need to teach our students here at Illinois State, for instance? Because mm-hmm. they're not the same as students everywhere else. They are uniquely Redbirds, right? Here they are. And 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 how can we best support their needs and, and teach from an evidence-informed, inclusive, equitable kind of standpoint? And so that's really what the Framework for Inclusive Teaching Excellence, which I'm going to say we call the fight because it's a lot shorter to say. Yes. Um, so that that's sort nope. of where the fight came from. No, nope. no aggression implied. Right. It is just happens to be what the acronym is. And, you know, we are a, a, a college campus and we like our acronyms. So. This is true. And so this this framework started with the work of Johanna Cuenca Carlino when she was still in the, uh, the provost's office um, as, as she was really trying to build out uh, a vision for what professional development needed to look like on campus. And, and folks who are familiar with the former CTLT and now our center, um, you know, can see that there's been an evolution to mm-hmm. um, moving away from shorter experiences in professional development to longer, deeper dives that that uh, include application and possibly study and, and trying to really wrap our minds around being as um, thoughtful and scholarly in how we approach this work as we possibly can be. Mm-hmm. And so when we can turn to this fight and, and Johanna's early work that continued for for several years to really build out an idea of, okay, what is the extant li- literature out there? Tell us about what good teaching is. What's the evidence tell us right. about how we engage our students and how we support them and how, how they are maximized as learners in our, in our teaching context. And then collect data from our own students. What, mm-hmm. what do you need that you aren't getting? What do you need that you are getting that's really great and, and helpful? And how can we then um, parlay that into a survey for faculty to gather the same information from them and, and put it all together and say, here is a snapshot of right now at this institution, what we need to be successful as teachers and learners. And, and so we have this framework that really lays out uh, a beautiful roadmap for six different dimensions that we know from um, the scholarship of teaching and learning and our own work here on campus are really critical to the mission of what we're trying to accomplish here at this university. So these are tied to our strategic plan. They're they're really, um, you know, anchored in uh, good scholarly mindful kinds of practices Mm -hmm. that if we look at as an institution and say, yeah, this is our institutional pedagogy, I think we can make a huge difference with our students. Mm -hmm. And so the six different dimensions of the fight would include the science of learning. So talking a little bit about the neurobiology that's behind uh, the brain-based learning, Um, the impact of course design, which of course, you know, how we we design our courses and and how we make sure that we're consistent and and transparent for our students. Mm An evidence-based pedagogy, looking at what we know works, feedback and assessment. So how can we give the most meaningful kinds of feedback to our students and help them use assessment as an opportunity to learn Mm -hmm. rather than as just a grade that doesn't mean anything? 
Uh, data-informed reflection. How can we collect information or data about our own teaching to inform changes in our future practice? But then at the beginning of, of a semester, this particular dimension, the sixth one, is, I think, the most critical, and it's about classroom climate and culture. Right. So this particular dimension really looks at how do we set up our entire learning environment to be equitable, inclusive, to be accessible to our students, to be a welcoming uh, place so our students feel like they can approach us as instructors. They can be mm -hmm. engaged as learners and, and co-create some of their experiences as learners. So we've talked a lot about uh, in, in past episodes about creating a community of learners, which mm -hmm. is, and that also uh, speaks to a specific method. You know, there are specific things that can be done. Maybe we'll touch on some of those. I do like the idea that classroom climate and culture is born somewhat out of a, of a communication mm -hmm. uh, issue mm -hmm. or of, of communication, good uh, best practices, evidence-based practices, Sure. Um, which, you know, is what I'm all about. So um, the idea that it is... You know, we, we talk in communication about the transactional model of communication, the idea that no communication between two people takes place completely in a vacuum. Even if you are trying very hard not to react, that in itself is feedback to the message. Playing into that strength when you're, when you're talking to your students and, um, you know, being able to read the room a little bit, either literally or metaphorically, I think goes a long way towards making it that welcoming environment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've done a lot of thinking about classroom climate and culture because I think it's just, uh, to me as an individual instructor, something that I feel is, is critical to how I operate, how I envision my engagement with my students and the content and, and how we, we bring everything together. To me, I, I need to, um, to build a particular kind of climate so yeah. that I feel like the interactions are balanced between the students and myself and, and that I can learn from them and they can learn from me and they can learn from one another. It's, it's To me, that is probably the most critical element um, in how I go about putting a, a classroom experience or course-based yeah. experience for my students together. So I like that as a definition for climate. Climate being, you know, what does it feel like when you're in the room? Mm -hmm. Okay. But help us parse a little bit more, break down a little bit more what we mean by a classroom culture. Mm -hmm. Is it simply an amalgam of all of the co-cultures that everyone is bringing into the room? Or is it something else? Is it, what is the function of it? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and is it co-created? I've used that word a couple different times so far, but it is important to think about. I think the opening salvo in thinking about classroom climate and culture comes from the instructor, him, her, their self thinking about how does their personal philosophy about teaching intersect with climate, or I'm sorry, intersect with content for the course, as well mm -hmm. as the number of students in the course, the level of students in the course, what, what that uh, instructor knows about good pedagogy for, for different groups of students at different points in their, their academic careers. And so I actually have been doing a lot of reading about teaching philosophies lately. And, and one of the books that I picked up at the start of the pandemic was um, one that was just then published in 2020 by Kevin M. Gannon, um, who is a great thinker about teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. um, if you want a really good uh, Twitter uh, profile to follow, it's his. He goes by the Tattooed Professor and has some really great stuff that he puts up a lot. But this book is called Radical Hope, A Teaching Manifesto. And I, I remember sitting in my front yard um, during a lunch break when we were all working from home right. in March and April and May of 2020 reading this book. And, and uh, I don't think radical hope was what we were feeling at that moment mm -hmm. in time. And so I read the book and I thought, this is good stuff. 
but I'm not in the headspace to really mm-hmm. take this good stuff in right now. Mm-hmm. And so I revisited this book in, in some travels this summer and really have a completely different philosophy about teaching philosophies now right. <laughs> because of, of reading this book. And I just want to share with you some of the, the things that he says when he talks about his philosophy of teaching. Okay. And he talks about his, his philosophy is centered on a pedagogy of radical hope, saying that pedagogy is political. Our pedagogy is a declaration of what we think that matters. It's a living description of how we think good teaching and learning should occur and of the moral imperative to create the type of inclusive and equitable learning spaces in which our students become critically conscious and actively engaged in their own education. I thought, what a fantastic way of thinking about Mm -hmm. who we are as teachers. And then we have to think about how do we make that happen. Right. And, you know, he suggests that maybe we go about thinking about teaching as life-affirming or centered on student agency or inclusive or equitable or about our praxis. But I also think it's about taking that core philosophy, that that piece that I read um, a moment ago, and saying, okay, now, how do I make this intention into actualization? Yeah. Through how I choose to set up learning experiences for my students, how I want to assess their learning, how I want to interact with them. Because otherwise, it's just words on paper. So how do you make it real? And to me, it's that, that process of actualization that builds the culture of a class. And I think that's I, I think that's so interesting because I have often had conversations with folks talking about how teaching philosophies the first first time you write out a teaching philosophy, it's very cover lettery. Mm-hmm. It's very almost superficial. This is this seems like it's really taking it from a standpoint of okay, how, what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. You know, as as this is a this is a, a framework, a tool, a, a direction. Mm-hmm. What do I do with it? Well, part of the reason I've been thinking about these teaching philosophies has to do with the AUDA awards that we have here on campus, the Outstanding mm-hmm. University Teaching Awards. And we realigned uh, those awards with the framework, right? The one that we were just talking about to say, you know, everyone who applies for one of these awards is certainly an excellent teacher. Um, but how does how you visualize your teaching philosophy and how you actualize that show your mm-hmm. excellence. And that's been um, a really interesting transition in the AUDA portfolio process is having conversations with individual nominees about, well, this is what I think and here's what I do. Yeah. And and seeing that sometimes there's connections and sometimes there isn't. And, mm-hmm. and, and looking at the opportunity there is to really reflect critically on what do I think, why do I think it, and how does that translate into how I practice? And right. I, I think that connection is magical when you can make it happen because it just it's that aha moment in teaching where you say, oh, my gosh, this is how I lay out the groundwork to right. be really successful. And to... To individualize my practice. I don't want your teaching philosophy to look like mine. Right. You know, you are your own individual person. You bring that to your classroom teaching. And I I hope to do the same. Obviously, within similar parameters of Mm -hmm. these are things we know, but this is how we as individual human beings make that um, meaningful to our students. So this is an exciting, it's it's a motivating line of thought. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going to do rework their teaching philosophy between when this episode drops and the and the next Monday when Probably there is. Not. So the question then becomes, it sounds like this is something that, you know, you work on this semester. Mm-hmm. What what are some of the practical things that you would suggest that we could do to get this started mm-hmm. in terms of building a, a classroom climate 
sure. uh, and a culture that you're looking for in your classroom. What are really quickly just what are some of the things? A couple that we things. Can do? Yeah. So um, I'll talk to you about two specific resources that are easily accessible uh, and and would not take much work to integrate into what we're doing already, but that might actually subsume a few of these different dimensions of fight simultaneously. Mm-hmm. The first is something called the Tilt Framework, which stands for uh, Transparency and Learning and Teaching, and I believe it originally came from Colorado State University, but I will make sure that's accurate and and give you a corrected note if we need to for (laughs) this uh, podcast. But um, the TILT framework is, it's basically a template for being transparent with your students around what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so it could just be, hey, Jim, I want you to write a reflective paper Mm -hmm. about the three things we read for class and and the class discussion. Can you please put that together and and tell me how it relates to you as an emerging professional? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a decent direction. But it doesn't tell you why you're doing any of that. Exactly. And so the TILT uh, framework really focuses on three different things. Really, the why am Mm -hmm. I needing to do this? So it's sort of the the heads up to why it's important. It's not just something that students can blow off. It's important for this reason. What is the specific task that students are being asked to do? So step-by-step directions or instructions about um, what students need to do to be successful with the assignment or the task. And how will uh, doing this activity help me understand the course content better? Mm -hmm. And I think that part's a little flexible. It can be how can it connect with other courses and their content? How can it help me be uh, a more evolved pre-professional in whatever it is that I'm studying? But connect it to something. Because a lot of times it's that connection that we know, but the students don't. So making that transparent through the tilt with students is really great. But the last part of the framework is what are the criteria that I'll be, um, you know, graded or evaluated by. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes we say, oh, it's worth 40 points, but we don't say how those points will be allocated. And right. so it, we miss out on allowing students to think about, okay, here are the six things I need to make sure in this. And here's how I can balance that. And here's because the rubric or the outline or the whatever of the assessment scheme really can help. And I think that last part about what do the points mean? Students make decisions on how much effort they put into an assignment or if they even do it at all based on this very superficial value of points. Mm-hmm. Um, and they may, I, I think this is a wonderful way to reinforce to them that you will get something, that, that there is value beyond using points. And I'm someone, I still use points in my in, in mm-hmm. my classes. I know there are many uh, folks on our campus who have tried in various ways to, to move beyond points, mm-hmm. various different methods that are out there. But uh, so I still, you know, at the end of the day, you have to you have to come up with a standard for the course and the grade and passing and all that other stuff. But I think that's a great way. I'm excited about that. That's a great way to get beyond just the this is only a 40 point assignment. I'm going to work mm-hmm. on my 60 point assignment. And and students know that points are not equal across courses, of right. course. Uh, but as we've said previously on this podcast, students are very busy people. They are. They are. They are much busier. Uh, than when I was an undergraduate or even as a graduate student. And, you know, I'm actually, I, I'm going to be teaching a, a freshman uh, speech course again this fall. I'm excited about. It's been a couple of years. I think they're going to be really different people than I met two or three years ago when the last mm-hmm. time I did it. I think things have just changed so much. Well, and that's not even, people talk a lot about generational differences in learners. That's, I mean, that's that's a nanosecond of a generation, just a couple of years, but experientially, they're completely different human beings because yeah. of what they've lived through. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So yeah. that was the tilt model. And then I do have to give a shout out to the K. Patricia Cross Academy. Um, it is a repository of wonderful resources that are all evidence-based. They come, they've come from the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. There's uh, high-impact practices that would suggest that these are really, um, when done well, effective ways of integrating um, different approaches to teaching into your classroom context. Mm-hmm. And I, I chose three to briefly talk about, but each one of the resources on the website, um, which I'm sure will be linked below... We'll have um, downloadable worksheets and templates and handouts to help you plan how to use these in your own classrooms. And and they're really easy ways to um, think about um, setting up a culture and a climate in your class that's inclusive for for students, um, maybe in slightly different ways. So um, the first that I want to talk about is the use of something called guided notes. And these are instructor-prepared notes. They can be as easy as fill in the blank. They can be reflective questions. They can be given ahead of time. They can be given before a lecture. But um, it, it serves as an outline of, of what you think is important that your students take out of a lecture. Because God knows we don't want them to write down every word we say and memorize them. While that could be flattering to some, it's not actually helpful in learning. <laughs> and I also know that something similar is done with for textbook. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, readings for chapter mm-hmm. assignments and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, some of the, you know, uh, modern, I guess, I would, I don't know if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. The electronic textbook I'm going to be using for that speech class has, mm-hmm. you know, those formative assessments built into sure. them at least. Well, and I've used guided notes in the past by having them be the first thing we do in class for the first 10 minutes. They're questions about integrating different parts of the readings and notes, and I have my students discuss them in small groups. And then guess what? They're willing to talk in the full group because they've right. had some validation from their peers. They have questions. They have ideas. Right. Um, and so guided notes can be used in in the moment uh, as you're teaching, but they also can be used as a preparatory set for sure. things that are coming that, that students might need a little um, practice with mm-hmm. before taking it to the big stage, mm-hmm. so to speak. So there's that. Um, there's also digital stories. I think increasingly um, students are looking to use different kinds of medias to share what they've learned in, in different ways. And and so using storyboards or, or other kinds of, of digital um, means Adobe Spark or, you know, mm-hmm. some of the, the things that are offered through Adobe can be really meaningful to um, allow students who really are into those kinds of visual representations to show that they've learned something in a way that we as instructors might not have thought about in the past. And, mm-hmm. and so I've been doing a lot of reading about visual methods of teaching and, and visual representations of learning and digital stories keep coming up as, as something that can be really meaningful um, to, to a lot of different students. Okay, so I'm going to put the one footnote on this. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about visual ways of talking, of students expressing themselves, we're not talking about the long debunked concept of visual learners versus, of learning oh, no. styles. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. So lest anyone thinks that we're now, we're now talking that, that's not the case. Nope. We're, we're talking about um, harnessing interest of students to use technologies in, in ways that we haven't all the time in all of our classes. And so, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe there's an option for students to engage in that kind of work. Cool. And the other thing I'll throw out there is the jigsaw, the good old jigsaw. It's mm-hmm. a great discussion strategy. You have six students who get to be experts on one topic, and there's uh, a variety of these groups around your class, and then you break them up, and one expert about each topic comes together and helps teach the others. Um, it's a really nice way to kind of diversify how we do small group discussion or large mm-hmm. group discussion in a class and and helps the students be interactive as opposed to uh, more passive as listeners and learners. And so you know, that K. Patricia Cross Academy site has dozens um, of ideas that are quick and easy um, that can be integrated uh, to build that classroom climate and culture um, and start off your fall semester successfully with hopefully engaged students who are interested in your content and you. 
So one other thing, just really quickly to mention about mm-hmm. the framework for inclusive teaching excellence, mm. I, I think that, um, you know, we've, we've used it very much um, as a way to categorize events and services that we offer. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly one way for folks to engage with it. But I do think that you can, you can go to our website. Um, we'll have it linked to the show page. You'll, you'll see it prominently on our redesign homepage as well. Mm-hmm. It's a great graphic that our colleague Kim Brucker created a few years ago for us and uh, a visual representation of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just read through those. And as you're kind of putting together your syllabus and everything else, I think it's actually just a great way to, to kind of get into a, a nice mental space. And you don't have to hit all of these Mm-mm. because they all feed into the same idea of, uh, of creating a, a, an inclusive learning environment. Yeah. And, and then you might be able to set some priorities on your own professional development down the road. If you think that maybe you haven't done a lot of data-informed reflection, then that uh, would be one. And mm-hmm. you can contact us, and we would be happy to consult with you about yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do want to make one point that this framework is very, uh, what do I want to say? I, I want to say it's very forward facing. It's not something that a lot of institutions have done. Right. The work that we did to create this framework, and, and I mentioned Johanna started it, Johanna Cuenca Carlino, others have been a part of it. Most of us in the center have been a part of it. But um, we will be publishing this in a peer-reviewed journal called the International Journal for Academic Development. It was just accepted um, because it is an example of what uh, a data-informed approach to creating an institutional signature pedagogy could look like. And and secondary to that, um, uh, many of us in the center have been accepted to present uh, about this at the Pod Network conference coming up in the fall, which is uh, probably the primary professional developers conference in, yeah. in North America. So um, it will be great to uh, be a part of that and share this work there. So it's it's not just a, an ISU sort of initiative. It's something that's gaining momentum and, and is kind of an example for other institutions, which is a wonderful thing. Jen, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have for this episode of Let's Talk Teaching. You can find out more about everything we talked about today. And there was a lot of it. The Framework for Inclusive Teaching Excellence. Just go to our website, our new URL, prodev, that's P-R-O-D-E-V dot Illinois State dot E-D-U. For Dr. Jennifer Freeberg, for all of my colleagues here at the Center for Integrated Professional Development, until we talk again, happy teaching.